Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Today we're going to be looking at some of the things that might hold us back from really receiving all that God has for us. And what we're going to look at today, the Israelites are really close to receiving the full promise, the good life that God is calling them into, and then get real close and they hit a wall and um, balk, and uh, it's they, they fall back from you know what God wanted to give to them. It's kind of like who who here likes Chipotle? Chipotle, any Chipotle fans? And you get you're going through the line, and the server's like, "Would you like guacamole with that?" It's like, "Why, yes, I would." It'll be two dollars and fifty cents. I, I don't think I wanted it that much. Never mind. I take it back. Some of us are like, I will pay $8 for guacamole. There you go. But like, I see it all spread out and wait a minute. Do I actually still want it if it's going to be an upcharge? This morning, friends, I think God has us as a church, and many of us as individuals too, in a really good spot. That we are positioned, we can, the Israelites in in what we're going to read, they could like almost see, they could almost smell the good life that God had for them. And then they were faced with another challenge. Like, oh, really, man? I'm not sure I want the, the 250, that upcharge. Friends, God wants to solidify us this morning. He has prepared us. He has good things ready for us. And this morning, he wants to prepare our hearts to receive the fullness of what he has for us. So let's pray, and then we're going to turn to scripture. Jesus, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have us on a journey today. Each and every one of us, Lord God, we are not static and just good enough. We are, you are taking us into good things. We are on a journey with you, Jesus. And thank you that we're not the only ones. We're in a community of faith and we stand in a long line of millions of others who you have led, Lord God, so faithfully and so well. As we turn to scripture today, we just open our hearts and our minds to what you want to speak to us. We open up our lives, our to-do lists, to some of even the tension of what we have to do this afternoon. We just open up our lives before you, Jesus. Our cares, our worries, our concerns. Holy Spirit, would you speak truth to us in your word today, Lord God, that we would be changed and transformed and led further along this journey of faith that you have for us, trusting you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are kind of in an earlier part of Scripture. We're going to be in the book of Numbers. And this is the story of the people of Israel. The Israelites have been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. The Red Sea has parted and they've uh, received the Ten Commandments. They're in a kind of holding zone, this wilderness area. God has 
fed them and provided for them, given them manna from heaven, taking care of them, given them some instructions, Ten Commandments of how to, how to live, how to order their society. The, the um, priests, the Levites, have been established. And now they're like right on the border, right on the threshold of the promised land where God's going to lead them and set them up to be a light and a blessing to all nations around them, to live in the ways of God, to enjoy life with God and be a blessing to them around, to everyone around them. God has prepared them. You know what? They're kind of ready. God's done everything necessary. They're on the threshold. The Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan the land that I am giving to the Israelites, send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent out 12 men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp, giving them instructions to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like. Find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps as the soil fertile or poor? Do your best to bring back samples of the crops you see. So one leader from each tribe, they're going to be able to communicate well any information. So they went up and explored the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehoboth. Going north, they passed through the Negev and arrived at Hebron where Ahime, Sheshai, and Talmai, all descendants of Anak, lived. Then they came to the valley of Eskol. They cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large that it took two of them to carry it on a pole between them. These are some different grapes, and it's possible that there are some exaggerations told throughout this story, but that's they were really, really good. They also brought back samples, the pomegranates and figs. So they come back to Camp Laden. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men return to Moses, Aaron. The whole community gathers round. They report what they had seen and showed them the fruit that they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore. Indeed, it is a bountiful country a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are much stronger than we are. So were the Egyptians, but he also escaped from the Egyptians. They, They spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought of us, too, appealing to a little inferiority complex. We felt small. I'm sure we looked pitiful to them. 
Then the whole community began weeping out loud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest. If only we had died in Egypt, or even here, in the wilderness. Because it's scary. They're in the waiting room. Behind them is Egypt. This is the only step forwards. Now, of course, for people who don't want to die, they seem pretty cool with dying in the past tense. Like, don't kill us, but it would have been okay if we had died in Egypt. It's, it's not rational. They were feeling very threatened. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back, to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. This is total mutiny and rebellion against their leaders and against the plans of God. They are rejecting a walk of faith. God, if you want us to bring us in and it's easy, okay, cool, we'd be happy to go. But otherwise, it's mutiny. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground before everyone. Joshua and Caleb tore their clothing apart. They said to all the people of Israel, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into the land and give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. God, if we continue reading, God steps in and God says, that's it. I'm done with you. I'm killing everyone in a plague. (laughs) Moses says, all this journey to kill everyone in a plague? What will the Egyptians say when they hear about this? Moses intercedes, God relents, and kills only the ten unfaithful spies who dissuaded uh, people. And he says that because they did not believe, uh, they will not enter the promised land themselves, just their children will enter the promised land. The next morning... The Israelites wake up, they see the ten dead spies, they say, oops, I guess God was right. Let's just go and do this anyways. Come on, guys, grab your shoes. Moses says, no, what did you not hear what just happened? Uh, Moses, why are you now disobeying the Lord's orders to return to the wilderness? This will not work. But they head out anyways without the ark of God's presence, without Moses, who is having no part of this haphazard dash, without God's blessing, it does not go well for them. Uh, And they are beaten back as far as Hormah. Yeah, in this story... The Israelites being given this great calling and blessing and land and life to enter, we see two responses. The first response is fear and freaking out. 
Uh, and the spirit of fear in this story should be familiar to us. We live with such wealth around us. We can get pomegranates all year round, and we have unlimited access to information and technology. But wait, what, what did you hear? Oh, a negative report? Tell me more. I better Google that. Oh, look, somebody on Twitter says the same thing. It must be true. Oh, no, this is going to be bad, guys. We think... Other people think we look like fools, like squishable grasshoppers. Uh, this, I'm so embarrassed. For all our advantages, we have not gotten braver. But the second response is recklessly attacking. After a, a loop of doubt and disobedience, they respond recklessly and frantically, probably out of shame and embarrassment. They say, we, we, we missed out. We this fear of, of missing out. Well, we're going to go out and get it and grab it and not let this slip through our grasp. I, I have a friend who uh, a couple of years ago, she bought a nice new car uh, on her credit card. I said, I didn't think you could buy a nice new, new, that new car on, on a credit card. And is this, is this a good financial uh, idea? She said, oh, Sarah, don't worry. I know that God is going to bless me financially. That is recklessly attacking. I, I believe that God will bless her financially. I truly do. Um, but forcing God to be your cleanup crew is really uh, disrespectful. But I think... You know, back in uh, my late 20s, I felt called to ministry. I'm gonna, I, I went to seminary, and they thought, huh, what am I going to... I'm not sure I want to tell people I'm going to seminary to like become a, a pastor, because who am I? It's a little, little old me. So there were a couple times, and, you know, I, I'm going to go back to school. Really, Sarah, for what? Theology. Why? Well, you know, I think I might be called to ministry. Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You do a lot with the church. But we have this timidity to really enter the full promises of God sometimes. To say, this is what God's calling us to, and we're going to embrace it wholeheartedly. Israel was on the doorstep of the promised land. God had saved them out of slavery. They'd been organized. Their priestly function, the Levites was set up. They're ready. And friends, I think we too are kind of ready, as ready as we will ever be in uh, many ways. God has prepared us. We are not lacking. This weekend, uh, Friday and Saturday, we had a... Um, regional vineyard uh, pastors gathering here for like 35 uh, youth pastors. You know what everyone said? They came in and they all said, your church is so pretty and the people are so nice. One pastor from uh, New Haven was like, I like everyone I've ever met from your church. I said, you've only met six of us? And I arranged it to be the nicest six. Um... But we're not lacking, guys. We're not lacking. 
and we see some of the fruit that God has for us. Uh, like two weeks ago, we did, we're in the Alpha series, and uh, two weeks ago with the youth group, we did the teaching on who is the Holy Spirit for Alpha. And at the end, I said, you know, guys, just going to open up the altar. You can come forward to, to pray if you want more of the Holy Spirit. And like all 10, 15 teenagers came up there, up here, and praying. Um, like we see some of the fruit that God has for us. And I think that this is getting at what we're about in this breakthrough uh, prayer series, that there's this dynamic of breakthrough. Before every major move of God, there's typically a time of, of breakthrough. Breakthrough means there's waiting, struggle, uh, enduring before revival, before victory, before God moves. God's getting us, us ready. So let's break down what this scripture is really showing us here. As we, we have the privilege of learning from other people, the Israelites, uh, we're just like them. We just have the privilege of learning from some of their mistakes as God had them at the threshold, at the doorstep, and they balked. What can we learn from them? Well, the first thing I think, um, there's some threats as we reach the, the doorstep, and we have to identify the opposition. We typically think uh, that when you are closer, it is easier. Close and easy should be approximately the same thing. You're getting closer, it'll be easier. That's not true. And I think it's because there's just spiritual opposition, and I know talking about spiritual warfare, spiritual opposition can sound really old-fashioned or like dark ages or something. Listen, I don't buy into the devil on one shoulder or angel on another shoulder. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You wanted to. Uh, I have a cold. It's spiritual attack. It's how germs work. But what has happened is we know that there are problems in this world. Refresh your newsfeed. There are problems out there. Uh, there are problems in here. You put a video feed in my living room. You know, we've got some, some problems sometimes. It ain't all uh, kumbaya. And um, we have actual evil in the world from the Middle East to on our iPhone. So where does it come from and who's to blame those darn Democrats, if it wasn't for them, the world would be perfect. If we just didn't have Mitch McConnell, it would know, be a bad place. No, there is real evil out there and it is not helping us to put the blame on other people. We turn against each other and see others as worse than they actually are, other people as the enemy or even as evil instead of broken people who we could work together with. There is something wrong out there. It's been said many times that sin or evil is only like scientifically provable part of Christianity. The solution may take a little bit of faith, but the problem's glaringly obvious. But instead of blaming forces of evil, we blame people. Instead of fighting a spiritual battle, 
We, we fight a human fight and it's not helping. We turn against people and blame and, and slander instead of staying in a strong place of prayer. A strong place of prayer. And the Bible says we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Scripture says uh, we, we need to stand strong against the schemes of the evil one, that we should not be unaware of the schemes of the enemy. What would it have looked like if the ten other spies had said, we took a tour around, God's plans for us are good. Good, good promises, but man, whew, they were some big dudes there, and I am feeling really nervous about this. This is not how I wanted it to go, I'm afraid. Could part of this be some spiritual opposition? Because I think what we do, we take our own tour around our lives, we look at what God's calling us to, and then we notice the problem. <clears throat> And instead of saying, we, we, see, we see the stones, we see the challenges, we see the obstacles. And instead of saying, hmm, could this be some spiritual attack or opposition? We say, oh, we see the boulders blocking our path. Did you not see this problem? It's here forever. I'm like, step back and say, God, would you put this into perspective for me? Could part of this be some pushback and some opposition to what you have called me to? We put it in perspective. In light of God's promises and grace and goodness, we have to evaluate and say, hey, could part of this be a scheme of the enemy? Could part of this be that the fear and attack of the enemy of my soul who does not want this good and flourishing for me. For example, you get into a little disagreement with your spouse. And this is, of course, totally imaginary. Never happened to me. But instead of saying, hmm, my partner is being inconsiderate and does not love me as they should, we say, there is a scheme of the enemy of my soul to sow discord and sow discontent in my life. I need to recognize that and push back on that. If you feel like, you know, my coworkers, they're just being disagreeable. I don't even think they like me that much. Say, hmm, maybe part of this is some spiritual attack against me really flourishing my workplace as I'm productive and fruitful and called and having witnessing relationships with my coworkers. Part of it, of course, is sometimes our own faults. Um, maybe I'm not a joy to work with all the time. As we notice frustration in our life. I spent my Saturday doing laundry the whole day and it was boring and my life is just not what I hoped it would be. Is my life really that bad or boring? Or is there an enemy of my soul out there that wants to discourage me? And I name that. That is discouragement and opposition. And friends, if it's not from God... If it's not something that God would say to us, we just send it back. 
Mm-hmm. If it's not the truth, if it's not encouraging, if it's not helpful, we reject that caption. We reject that title or description. We send it back and claim the truth of God's life over us, God's word over us. So the Israelites, they were so close, and then they hit opposition. Uh, All 12 of these men traveled through the same lands, saw the same thing, slept on the same ground at night, lived the same journey, but 10 of them came away apprehensive. Two of them came back faith-filled. What was the difference? Well, it wasn't disagreement about how good God's plan could be. It was disagreement about trusting God's word. For some, giant fruit was a sign of giant obstacles. For the other ten, their unbelief made God's good gifts seem like threats. Made God's good gifts seem like threats. Caleb, he focused on the fruit The others focused on the challenges, but it's more than that. It's more than grapes versus giants weighing the pros and cons, advantages or disadvantages, cup half full, cup half empty. If that's how we approach it, we will always falter. One Old Testament theologian said, Caleb and Joshua saw everything the others saw. They had a clear view of the goodness of the land. They were by no means blind to the uh, real difficulties that stood between them and the possession of the promise. But they saw God. They started with that vision and saw everything else in its light. We see giants. We see God bigger. We have hope not in potential or probability or what we think realistically might be possible. We have hope in the promises of God. Jürgen Moltmann uh, says that hope alone is realistic because only hope takes seriously the possibilities of life with God. Hope is realistic Because it factors God into the equation. If you are following God and you're looking out at your life and not saying, and then there's the God factor, you are missing the biggest part of the equation. Hope is realistic. Because hope takes seriously the reality of what God can do in our life. Caleb did focus on the positive rewards of following God. But that was the result, not the reason. The reason was that he knew the promise of God's presence. He was realistic about the giants, but he knew that with God on their side, the total power system was altered. Caleb relied on two things, God's promise and God's presence. But when he went, th- when, when the going got really tough, when the people were like standing up and beginning to like want to stone him, he relied on God's presence the most. Listen to what he says. He says, at the beginning, let's go and take the land. We can certainly conquer it. 
And then continuing, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land. They are helpless before us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And I think this is instructive for us. Caleb knew the promises of God. God had made it very clear what his plan and intention was for the people of Israel. But when the situation got real bad, he says, God is with us. Bottom line, God is with us. I think this is instructive for us because sometimes when the going gets real tough, most of us, do not think back with certain, ah, yes, I remember October 4th, 2022. God said this, and I can say it verbatim, and I just, I just know it's going to happen. We start to question, well, you know, that's what I thought God said, or that's what it seemed like in the moment. Our deepest promise is the promise of Scripture. Because that is applicable to all of us. That is what God has ordained in the canon of Scripture for us. has been a firm foundation for thousands of years for followers of Jesus. That we can claim and name for all of us. But even then, sometimes you're like, do you mean that for me or for someone else? The presence of God is what we rely on. When we start to question everything else, when the mob and the crowd starts coming at us, God, do not be afraid, for God is with us. We dig down to the most basic core foundation in the trenches. God's presence is with us. Caleb, he could have had the same faith remembering God's promises. Remember God said he would take us into a land flowing with milk and honey. He could have said that is a promise. We take it to the bank. But ultimately here he relies on something even deeper, God's presence going with them. And as we battle in prayer, I think this is what we do in prayer. We name our circumstance and our situation. We hold it out to God, and then we start praying God's promises over that situation. We start praying the true words of Scripture into that circumstance and situation, and then we just cover all of our life in the presence of God. Um, my uh, twin sister is out in Chicago, and um, her and her husband just uh, they purchased a real fixer-upper uh, a couple of years ago. They've been in the same apartment since they got married, and they now have four kids, and the nursery is also the office, and it was time. So great investment property. Took out some of the retirement money to pay for it, and uh, got a good loan. And then as lumber construction costs have gone up, the loan no longer covers what they need. So they've spent the last year and a half 
in a very, very tough situation where basically their choice was bankruptcy or foreclosure. Short sale or bankruptcy. Um, I mean, they took out retirement savings to pay for this. And um, my sister, my twin sister has just done so well in holding the circumstance before God and then saying, God, we prayed about this. We prayed, we saw your face on this and you didn't stop us and we trust you as you are a good father. And we start to go off, we, we gave you lots of opportunities to stop us on this one. We got confirming words from other people. Had someone tell them that God was going to lead them into their own Goshen and a new house and new property like a month before they bought this. Um, We have these words, confirming words from other people, and then the promises of Scripture. God, that you are calling our family, you are establishing and rooting our family in a good home to grow in, uh, to teach our kids in the ways of the Lord. Praying on the promises of Scripture. And then my sister just coats it all in the presence of God. And God, you are with us. You are with us. It is just money. She has been able in this season to enjoy life, to do fun things with the kids. I call her and text. She's like, oh, it's a beautiful day. We did this and that. I'm reading this great book. We stayed up till midnight crying and, you know, trying to look at our bank. Because she's seeing the circumstance, praying God's promises over it, and then just coding it in the presence of God. When we're on the threshold, when it gets tough, we know there's going to be opposition. We name it. We, we, we put that into perspective. And then we claim the promises of God and soak in the presence of God that he is with us. You know, I look at this room and I see Caleb's here. I see Caleb's who are standing strong in what God promised them. And the thing about Caleb is he wasn't smarter than other guys. He didn't have a special strategy. Um, When he toured around the promised land, he didn't get special insight and inspiration. He wasn't stronger. He didn't say, well, those guys couldn't take the giants, but me, I'm in tip-top shape. He was not better. He wasn't better. He trusted in God's promises, and he relied on God's presence. Friends, we don't have access to any special information. We are not anything better or special or different. We know God's word and we trust in God's presence. My faith can be very ordinary. I can, I get caught up in my own stuff. My youngest daughter will be like, so can I mom? Like, Wait, what? I was busy daydreaming about my own to-do list. Uh, You're going to have to repeat yourself. I, I have never prayed as much as I wanted to or hoped to or promised God I would. I feel very inadequate to taking hold of the promised land that God has for me many times. But I know God's word and I have God's presence. And friends, we know that God will come through for us. As I said, I look around at this room and I see Caleb's. 
I see people who know God's promises, who have heard God's promises for you, for your calling, for your family, who know God's promises in Scripture over your life. I see people who know God's presence, who have the Spirit of God with them. I think God is raising up Caleb's here, raising us up as Caleb's who stand firm on God's promises. Here's what happened for Caleb. Much later, a whole generation later, once most of Caleb's uh, peers had died out as God said they would, this is the book of Joshua. Caleb stands before Joshua, who's leading them into the promised land. And he says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report, but my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. For my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that day Moses solemnly promised me, the land of Canaan, which you were just walking, will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. Now, as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well as he promised me for all these 45 years since Moses made me this promise. Even while Israel wandered in the wilderness today, I am 85 years old. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey. I can still travel. I can still fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country the Lord promised. So Joshua blessed Caleb and gave Hebron to him as his portion of the land. <clears throat> the value of the promise depends on the promiser. The value of the promise depends on the promiser. Believing in God is simply looking to who he is, reminding ourselves of the reliability and the character of God, the trustworthiness of his character. And if that promise sometimes seems out of reach, we have the promiser right within our reach. Mm -hmm.